Hi, Connor Boyle here from Intelligence Squared. Today on the podcast, we have the latest episode of The Futureverse, a podcast from Intelligence Squared and Ytree. Our host is journalist Kamal Ahmed, who's joined by the war correspondent Christina Lam and adventurer and broadcaster Simon Reeve for a conversation about risking your life for your work. Here's Kamal with more. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Futureverse, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ytree. I'm Kamal Ahmed. Now, Ytree was founded in 2017 to give its clients the transparency, efficiency, and meaning to fully understand their financial lives as they are and as they could be. Today, we're turning to our latest theme in the Futureverse, risk. In our previous episodes, we explored financial risk in all its forms with Ytree's Johnny Hempel and Nick Humphreys, senior partner at HG Capital. And we delved into the ups and downs of entrepreneurship and running your own business with Michael Welch, OBE. But today, we're concluding this mini-series by examining risk very literally. And this one is a real pleasure for me because we are bringing together two leaders in their field but also two people I am fortunate to know. And they have much to reveal about the world of risk taken for the most noble of purposes. Christina Lamb is one of Britain's leading foreign correspondents and a best-selling author. She has reported from most of the world's hotspots, beginning with Afghanistan, where she covered the Mujahideen fighting the Soviet Union when she was just 22. She is currently Chief Foreign Correspondent at the Sunday Times, and her latest book is Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, What War Does to Women. Simon Reeve is an adventurer and best-selling author and TV presenter who has travelled to more than 120 countries, making multiple award-winning TV series for the BBC. Described as British television's most adventurous traveller, he has spent nearly two decades travelling the world. He's dodged bullets on the front line. He's hunted with the Bushmen of the Kalahari and been detained for spying by the KGB. He started his career as a postboy at the Sunday Times. I think it's safe to say that both our guests can speak with authority on risk and we're delighted to have brought them both together. Simon, Christina, welcome to the podcast. Now, Simon, I'm going to start with you first. I think you and Christina may have met before. Just take us through that to kick us off. Oh, well, so I was, as you said, I was a postboy on the Sunday Times. That's how I started. I didn't have the most illustrious education before becoming an adult. I dropped out of school when I was 17, 16, 17. I was on the dole for a bit and then I got a job working at the Sunday Times, sorting the post. And over a couple of years, I graduated um, from being there at half five in the morning, sorting the mail to being, I think, a junior cub or junior home news researcher or something like that. And then a researcher, brackets, home news, and then that sort of gentle climb up a, 
a low ladder. And I remember, you know, obviously sorting the post for Christina. Although it's possible that's just a yarn that I've invented in my head because Christina may have joined a little bit later. <laughs> I'm just wondering why I never seemed to get any mail. <laughs> ah, all those scoops, Christina, that got lost yes. in the post room. <laughs> you, could have won, you could have won even more awards, Christina, than you have done. Christina, give us a little bit of the opening. I mean, the amazing journeys you went on from a very, very young age. I know we'll get to this a bit more, but just tell us, just give us a little potted history of the career. So actually, I mean, I never set out to be a war correspondent. I really wanted to be a novelist. So I had this idea of going abroad and working as a journalist for a while to have some adventures and then go and rent a garret somewhere and write my great novel. But I started off, as you said at the beginning, in Afghanistan. And that was really by accident because I got invited to a wedding in Pakistan and it wasn't an ordinary wedding. It was Benazir Bhutto's wedding. I had interviewed her in England when she was here in exile. And I was an intern for the Financial Times just starting out. And she was very nice to me. And the day that I interviewed her, she just announced her engagement to Asif Ali Zadari. So her flat was full of bouquets of flowers. So maybe because of that, I don't know. But some months later, I was then working in Birmingham as a trainee reporter for Central TV, most junior person in the newsroom. And I came home one day and there was this most beautiful gold inscribed invitation to a wedding. And it was Benazir's wedding in Pakistan. So of course I went and it was the first time I'd ever been to Pakistan. It was an amazing introduction to the country because... Her wedding was so colourful and so many interesting people were there and it went on for a week. And every evening after all the sort of ceremonial events, there were gatherings with her political colleagues to talk about how to topple Pakistan's military dictator, General Zia. So I was absolutely fascinated. These people, some of them were not much older than me, and they'd been arrested, tear gassed, tortured for trying to bring democracy to their country. And at that point, I mean, the most dangerous thing I'd ever done was find my way home late at night from central London after a gig when the trains had stopped. So I was really intrigued. So I came back and couldn't really imagine covering local news in Birmingham anymore. And so I gave him my notice and told everybody I was going to live in Pakistan. But when I went to talk to foreign editors about freelancing from Pakistan, nobody was interested. They all said that General Zia had been there for 11 years. Nothing was going to change. And then a couple of them said, well, we are interested in Afghanistan, because at that point it was under Soviet occupation. So I said, OK, I'll go and cover that. <laughs> so I went to live in Peshawar on the border with Pakistan, Afghanistan, and started traveling with the Afghan Mujahideen into Afghanistan and fell in love with it. What's really fascinating hearing both of you speak is how you don't sort of decide to take risk but that it can come to you and become part of your life. That notion that the journey into situations where you have to start managing risk can come from so many different places. And just hearing your two stories about how you started your careers, I think really reveals that. Christina, how do you gear change, if I could put it like that, between Ukraine, 
Afghanistan. How do you gear change back into what might be described as ordinary life? That's the hardest thing of my job, I think. It, to come back, I think that maybe the most jarring time of that was in 2006, I was with the three parachute regiment in Helmand in Afghanistan, and we were ambushed and completely surrounded for hours running through these muddy fields. We were really, really lucky to get out. And one of the things that kept me going and running in this sort of 45 centigrade heat with no water, with all this firing going on, was knowing that it was my son's birthday at the end of the week. And it was his seventh birthday and that I had promised to be back to host a football party in a park in southwest London. And so I did get back. And it was so strange because literally I arrived at Heathrow on the Sunday and went straight to Tesco's to buy like bread and ham and then went to the park to have this party. And I was absolutely covered still in thorns and bruises from jumping in and out of these muddy ditches to try not to be shot. And my story about it was on the, the front page of the Sunday Times. And, and yeah, I was in this party with all these six and seven-year-olds in this park. And that really felt very, very odd indeed. Simon, did it change your attitude to the work you do or your attitude to risk in the work you do when you became a father? Not immediately. The first place I went to after my son Jake was born, within a couple of weeks after he was born, actually, was was to Mogadishu and in Somalia. And it was a it was a tricky time there. But that was I knew that was part of the deal, as it were. I was making a series where I was traveling around the Indian Ocean. It had been my idea, the way the the trips had just ended up being planned out like that was it meant that I was going after Jake was born. It wasn't to make a point or anything. And I think as he grew and became, has become more of a, a grown-up little man, which happens, as you'll know, surprisingly quickly, then I suppose I felt a little bit more conscious of his existence and my responsibility to balance providing for him with with not taking necessary crazy risks that aren't mitigated by by reward, I suppose. So everything I do, I've got to feel that it's justified. I feel like I've got to be able to look him in the eye and say, this is why I did it. I don't want him to live his life without a father. Definitely, definitely not. And I had a, a partner earlier in life who had suffered the catastrophic loss of her father in the sort of circumstances we're talking about. And I know, and I knew how it always not affected her for a, a, a period or a decade or anything, but would do for always. So I'm very conscious of that. This is my job. This is what I do. I feel there's some justification for it. I feel I can say to him, look, I'm not there on a jolly. I'm there to film this or film that and explain it. And I think that's the real learning for me, that whereas I would have slightly more, not blindly, but perhaps with slightly more cavalierly, started on projects and gone to strange places now I need to have a clear understanding in my own head just a slightly clearer so it's not it's not a revolutionary thought it's more of a slight evolution and and a calming as you as you 
grow, mature and get a bit older. Christina, similar question. Does does becoming has becoming a parent changed your attitude to your appetite for risk and how you manage it? Yes, of course, because you're responsible for somebody else. I think in my case, I mean, I've always covered conflict, right, from when I was starting out. So when I look back, actually, at the things I did when I was 22, I mean, I think then you think you're indestructible and, you know, you nothing will happen to you. Although actually the job has got more dangerous. But what happened with me is my son was actually born in 1999. And so I did think about changing what I was doing. And I took a sabbatical in 2001 to actually, because I also write books, I took a sabbatical to work on a book. And my husband's Portuguese, and so I was going to write the book in Portugal. We literally arrived in Portugal on the 11th of September, 2001. Actually, we arrived on the 10th. The 11th morning was my first morning that I was planning to start working on this book. And then I got a phone call, and we didn't even have a TV where we were, so we had to go to a local chicken restaurant, and we watched the 9-11 attacks. So, of course, my sabbatical got cancelled from my paper. I think, Christina, hearing from both of you, it is that notion of a lot of this is driven by a personal desire and engagement in, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, it is something that has a nobility about it, about explaining, exploring and holding to account around these vitally important issues, which I think is something to do with the DNA of being a journalist. Simon, could I could I go back again? When you're thinking about risk, did, were you always somebody who, in your 20s, did you imagine yourself to be a risk taker? Is there such a thing or was it a different motivation? I think there are. I think there is such a thing. Yes, I think... I've certainly met people over the years who take risks because they need to feel that that makes them alive. And I would, I would say that, yes, I, I take some risks, but I don't really take it for the sake of the risk. I take it for the reward. And the reward has got to be quite clear for me, whether that's the content we're creating or whether it's the article, the book, the whatever. Or to be honest, you know, to to provide for my family. I don't do, I don't take risks, I would say, for personal joy or personal gain in that sort of emotional sense. It's got to be more practical or, or to a certain degree, moral or financial almost. Was I always? Yeah, I probably was a bit as a lad. So when I was in my early teens, I was, I was pretty naughty. When you talk about risk, I think being in my little BMX gang, cycling, no hands down Acton High Street with my brother on the back of the bike, weaving in and out of cars and and causing trouble, really. I mean, that's that's that strikes me as cavalierly risky and stupid. But I, I had, I mean, I had, by my time in my mid-teens, I, I had trouble getting out of bed. I wasn't, I was, it wasn't about taking risks. It was about being able to get up in the morning. I was in a complete state of dark depression, and then for me, taking a risk was getting out of bed and putting one step in front of the other and going to the newsagent, getting a paper and going through the job ads. And that felt 
risky and and scary that and and I think those two elements are quite important together so that that was my that was me starting with risk in many ways as a as a young adult and then when I started working as I said I started working as a post boy but opportunities very quickly came my way and I was I was somebody who said yes a lot that didn't necessarily come naturally to me but I was keen to have a chance. I was keen to sense that a door was opening a crack and then stepping through it. And although I was often terrified of what I was doing, I started working on some investigations when I was at the paper. I started, One of my big breaks was tracking down these two South African neo-Nazi terrorists who were on the run in the UK and going to find them uh, in Boston First thinking it was Boston in the States, of course, and worrying I didn't have a passport and then discovering it was Boston in Lincolnshire and having to retrieve them from this little market town. And that was that was a scary and risky endeavour that um, I could have said no to. But once you've said yes, once you've sort of maybe I'm just very pliable. Once you've said yes to something, then you've got to I feel I've got to deliver on that. So whether it's okay, I've agreed I'm going to go and get these terrorists. I better go and find them or whether it's I'm going to travel around the Indian Ocean. So, of course, Part of that idea is to go to Bangladesh. It's to see the problems of Somalia as well as the glory of Mozambique and, and Madagascar. So once I've committed, I tend to stick with things. But it can just sometimes be that little saying yes that gets you into a situation you hadn't quite expected or prepared for. And I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't personally say I am a natural risk taker, but I've come to be fairly comfortable with taking risks. I wrote a book on Al-Qaeda, it became a book about Al-Qaeda in the 1990s after the first attack on the World Trade Centre. And that probably was my real introduction to a proper serious risk. And in many ways, I don't think I've ever really taken quite as many risks as I did while I was on my own, um, without a safety net, without anyone to say, are you sure? And so I took a few risks then that I perhaps now regret. Christina, take us through similar journey for you. Obviously, as you mentioned at the beginning, and we, we mentioned at the outset of this this podcast, Afghanistan at 22. Tell us a bit, A, about your experience of doing that, the amazing things you actually went through when you arrived. And then, and then let's broaden out into how has the conversation changed in our industry and, frankly, I'm sure in many others. When I started out, of course, there was none of this. And I just went off on my own. And there was no mobile phones. There was no satellite phones in Afghanistan where I was going there were no phones. And so I would go off for weeks and nobody knew where I was. And I, I used to worry a bit about my mom getting worried. So I'd leave postcards with friends to post to her while I was away so that she wouldn't realize that I disappeared somewhere. But actually, the post was so bad from Pakistan, I'm not sure it really they arrived until I came back anyway. So actually, I mean, there, of course, weren't many women doing this job then, although that wasn't something I particularly thought about until later on. And so it was often quite hard to persuade the Afghan Mujahideen to take me because they'd say, you know, like women don't go to war. But I did persuade this group at one point to take me on the backs of their motorbikes to Kandahar and spent three weeks traveling around Kandahar with these guys who ended up becoming the Taliban, actually. But then when the Russians pulled out, there was a lot of pressure on the Afghan Mujahideen to capture a city to show that they could actually control some area. And the nearest city to Pakistan was Jalalabad. 
So they were really, many of them didn't want to do this because they knew that there would be very high casualties if they tried to take a city. So they went in and Pakistan intelligence, ISI, which was kind of controlling everything, closed the border to stop people going in because they didn't want journalists to see what was happening. So everybody, all the journalists there were trying to find a way in. And eventually an Afghan friend said to me, we've got these ambulances going in so we could hide you in the ambulance. So I said, great. So I hid under the floor of the ambulance. They had all these sort of blankets at the back, which were actually all had been soaked in Dettol disinfectant. And so actually, by the time we crossed the border, I think I was quite high on the fumes of this. And then we drove from the border to Jalalabad. And it was pretty clear very quickly that the whole thing was quite disastrous because the roads were being bombed by the Afghan Air Force or possibly still Russians. But loads of people were fleeing the city because the Mujahideen were trying to take it and they were firing rockets in. So people were being caught between the rockets and the shelling. And thousands of people were killed. And so it was the first time I'd really seen like mass casualties. And we were in a convoy of three ambulances and one of the ambulances got hit by one of the Russian bombings. So our ambulance like pulled straight off the road to the side. And then they said that they were going to go back because it was too dangerous. So I said, but you're an ambulance. You're supposed to go and collect casualties. And they said, no, it's too dangerous. So they turned back. And I didn't want to go back because then I was on the outskirts of Jalalabad. So I got them to drop me at a kind of sort of tea place, almost like a resting place for some of the Mujahideen. And then it was difficult because I wasn't with any group. I was just on my own there. So I had to persuade them to take me. So I think that was a case where I was just so, I never thought about anything except the story. I was completely determined to get in and see what was happening. And yeah, I probably wanted to be like the first to get in as well. And, and so I thought, I mean, now I would be much more careful about what I was doing. But then I was just completely, I've got to get in. I've got to see what's happening. And I did eventually. It's changed a lot. And really, I think it changed around, first of all, around the time of the war in Iraq, because we were not able to get war insurance without going on a hostile environment course. So that's the first time I did a course. And you might remember people were very worried that Saddam had the famous chemical weapons so and biological weapons. So we would we had to go on a really bizarre training, which where you were given these little this pack of little papers so that you could know what kind of chemical or biological weapon was being used against you, which didn't seem much use to me, given that you would, you know, by that time, you would be dead, really, or about to be dead. Um, So and I remember the first time I did the hostile environment course in the beginning of 2003, basically learning that everything I'd been doing for the previous 15 years was wrong. But somehow I'd survived. So I was a little bit perturbed by 
by this. And then I think for us, certainly at the Sunday Times, things changed a lot when our colleague Marie Colvin was killed in Syria in 2011, because that really brought home the risk. And since then, we now have to do these risk assessments before we travel, which are actually, I hate doing them because you have to do things like put an exit plan right on it. I mean, how do I know an exit plan if I'm in Afghanistan where there are no, pretty much no diplomats now, no only Afghan airlines flying in and out. It's very, you know, if something happens to you, you're, you really are on your own. What kind of exit plan am I going to put? I don't have somebody personal who's going to come and extract me from <laughs> the mountains in Paktia or somewhere. So some of this, I think it's a bit of an exercise in executives covering themselves. That's really interesting, Christina. It's about that there's a human motivation, isn't there? There's a journalistic motivation, and that affects the way you know we think about those other mitigating factors. Simon, this notion of how to analyse risk, there's what we do beforehand, but there's actually in the moment and as it's happening. Simon, how do you work through particularly when you are in literally dangerous places. How do you work through in real time? Well, you've got to go with your gut. You've got to go on instinct. You're going on 30 years of, 30 years of relative experience and in the broadest sense. And you rely on other people around you as well, I think. Personally, I try not to be surrounded by only by pessimists or optimists. I need a mix of both. I definitely need optimists amongst the people I work with because otherwise we'd get nothing done. But I also need people like me who say, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? Have we got a plan for that? Have we got a plan D brackets one, two, if the proverbial happens? In the actual moment, I'm slightly embarrassed to say, because it might sound a bit ridiculous out of context, but we do sometimes, I sometimes use a sort of scoring system out of 10 to indicate how much somebody does or doesn't want to do things. And to justify that, I would say sometimes you can't just rely on somebody going, well, you need to be able to put a figure on it. You need a, a sort of binary method of measuring how a person is feeling. And I'm talking about one of my colleagues who may or may not feel concerned, fearful, confident or whatever about whether we go on a raid with an El Salvadorian SWAT team in a particularly dangerous neighbourhood where the last time the police went in, they were met by automatic weapons fire and a rocket-propelled grenade. So I can't just drag people into that situation without discussing it with my small team. So sometimes I'll say, how much do you or don't you want to do this? How strongly do you want to go in there out of 10? How concerned are you about the people we're with? Basically, we're talking through the risk as quickly as we can. And we're as professionally as we can trying to put a figure to give us a binary reference to how concerned or confident we are. And that's worked reasonably well. I'd say we use percentages as well. How likely is it that we're going to be able to get into this particular forest after we've trekked for three days to find the endangered primates? Well, we think we're 60%. Okay, how can we up that to 70 or 80%? These are the sort of ridiculous TV conversations we have, but justified, I hope, by the, the end goal. And Simon... 
you've already raised this issue that risk lives in different spaces. There's kind of high wire dramatic risk that we've heard so much from Christina and you about. There's the more everyday life risks, getting out of bed one foot in front of the other. And you've also discussed in some of our preparation for this conversation we're having together that it's not actually the dangerous bits that actually can cause the really highly risky situations. It's almost the more practical, the more mundane bits of the job, which is not the actual high wire, are we going to get shot in this situation? But it's it's the more practical things. I just wonder, Simon, if you could unravel that a little bit for us. Yeah, I think, so I, I've talked in the past and believe quite strongly that certainly for what I do, the greatest danger not lie, lies not on a, a frontline situation somewhere because I'm I'm quite rarely in situations like that. It's much more the vehicle with bald tyres, no seatbelts and the driver who's still hung over from the night before. So those are my particular areas of concern. And I suppose for me very personally, that idea of the the seatbelt is almost quite totemic almost. It's it's quite fundamental to my sense of security. I will not travel in a vehicle almost anywhere now which doesn't have seatbelts in it. There is no there is no excuse for it, quite frankly. And just when we were in Botswana just now, we had a vehicle with no seatbelts in the back. But the, the joy of being in a country where such things are even possible now is you can always get seatbelts welded to the subframe overnight. You can get tyres changed so they're not literally, literally do not have holes in them. And if the driver is drunk, then we can Velcro him in the back and sit on him, sit on him as re- been required on one occasion and take the wheel ourselves, quite frankly. So there's a, I suppose th- there's a, a, a certainty about danger and risk there and perhaps almost a confidence about it that means I am not going to sit next to somebody who I can smell booze on the breath of. We're going to get him out of that seat. We're going to stop what we're doing and we're going to we're going to reassess. But certainly, yes, I think for me, what I do, wear a seatbelt, buckling up is absolutely really key. And the people I work with, guys, oh, on about it again, they know it's really fundamental. So my point is really, it's it's the basics. And remember, you know, life is fundamentally risky. It's a miracle any of us are alive at all. We live in a country where thousands of people are hospitalised every year because they have an accident putting their trousers on in the morning. That is not to be flippant, but it is to say that our existence is fundamentally risky. And I do think every it's up to each individual to find what their comfort zone is, find their tolerance, if you like, for risk, and then nudge against that, I would suggest, because that's where the best experiences lie. And sometimes you've got to push through that comfort zone a bit and take slightly more risk. But nobody should be going into situations or creating situations willingly for themselves where they're putting themselves into a state of blind terror and panic and PTSD potentially because of the risks they're experiencing by choice. If you can avoid ludicrous risk, then stick with a risk you're confident and happy with, whether financial or professional. That idea of control, what you can control, I think is really Mm. fascinating. I love the seatbelt metaphor. Christina, similar question to you. Is there something similar in your mind and your experience about controlling what you can control and what might be seen as almost a more mundane, as you say, Simon, not to be flippant, but a more mundane way, frankly, of coming to harm? Well, I certainly agree about 
cars because actually I've lost more friends in war zones in traffic accidents than in actually being sold or as a direct consequence of the war. So I do agree about that. I also, something you mentioned, Simon, that I think is really important is instinct. And, you know, I cannot explain, but there have been situations I've been in that just seemed wrong. And I'll give an example during the war in Iraq at the early part. So I was covering southern Iraq and the British troops were supposed to be taking Basra. I was not embedded with the troops. I was what was called a so-called unilateral, which basically meant we were almost like refugees. We were sort of driving around in a car, living in a car for weeks and trying to find what was going on. And so... The war had just started. Kassa had been taken in the south. I think it was the second day. It was a Saturday. And so for me, a Sunday paper, I needed something. I just joined the Sunday Times. So I, with a colleague, was driving towards Basra. And there was just something on that road. There was no sign of any troops. There was just something that felt wrong. I just couldn't explain it. And... In the end, we stopped and and I said, there's just something wrong here. We, I'm going to turn back. And my colleague who was less experienced was a bit baffled. I called the foreign editor and I said, look, I don't really know what's happening, but there's no sign of any troops. The few people we see look pretty hostile <laughs> and it just doesn't feel right. And he was really cross and he said to me, but, you know, I've got wire copy here saying that US jets are pounding the bridges of Basra. So I said, look, I'm sorry, I'm at the first bridge into Basra. Nothing's pounding anything. I don't know who's putting that out, but it's absolutely not true. There's no signs of any foreign troops here. So I said, I'm turning back. And he was annoyed. And and then he actually even said to me, are you sure you're on the right road? There's only one road from this. And because I just joined the paper from Sunday Telegraph and I'd come supposedly as this sort of, you know, brave war correspondent. So, you know, there was some pressure on me to show what I could do. And there I was like the first week literally saying, well, I'm turning back. So, so we then drive back to this area where there was British military police, maybe half 45 minutes drive back. And they said to me, what on earth were you guys doing? And I said, what do you mean? And they said, do you not realize you were driving ahead of the front line? So I was like, okay, no. Anyway, so we stopped there kind of, you know, wondering what to do. And we had passed on the road coming as we turned back a vehicle with TV taped on it. And so we stopped as both of them and it was ITN crew. And I said to them, this doesn't feel right. There's no sign of any troops and it's just very weird down there. And we're turning back. And they said, oh, no, we're going to go and see. Anyway, so while we were then waiting with the military police, they then suddenly got a message. Everyone was very perturbed. And they said that uh, these guys had been attacked and the reporter had been killed. And so I... After that, of course, felt, you know, if, if that could have been us, right? And I cannot to this day explain what it was that made me feel it was wrong. But, you know, I'm glad that I turned back. And there have been a number of situations like that where you just develop somehow an instinct about things. 
Let's move into the final few minutes of this absolutely amazing, fascinating conversation with you, Simon and Christina. Simon, the rest of your life, are you a risk taker on a football field going to the supermarket? Are you constantly leaping over turnstiles and making sure that everything you do is as risky as possible? Are you an adrenaline junkie? Does it bleed into the rest of your life, the ability to take managed risk in your professional life? I think it does to a certain degree. It's hard for me to fully understand it, though, because obviously, as I've got older, I've, I've become more privileged in every possible sense. And so is it, am I taking as much risk as somebody younger who's of different gender trying something different? I doubt it, to be honest. But do I take risks in private life? I suppose I do to a certain degree. Not, I'm, I'm not free for parachuting in my spare time. But what I seek is experiences and memories, and I'm prepared to take chances for that. I suppose if I'm if I am a risk taker, then it's pri- primarily professional. But that has definitely fed into the rest of my existence as well. But again, I I need to know what the I need to know what the the sort of reward is rather than just blindly jumping off a cliff if nobody's looking. If my son is there and I'm trying to show off to him, I might do something daft like that. But there's got to be a bit of a reason. But definitely I'm always looking in every aisle of the supermarket for the new experience if I'm not jumping over trolleys in the aisle. For whatever reason, anyone would do that. Come on. Christina, I was reading very recently in the Sunday Times that even on holiday, you managed to take a high degree of risk, even even risks that you maybe didn't think were coming. Do tell us about do tell us about your most recent holiday with your husband? Okay, well, I mean, to be fair, that was a, a travel article I was sent on, so I went on this cruise of West Africa which was supposed to be a, it was a boutique cruise in a very nice boat, but or ship, I should say, while I was on the plane to Angola to catch this ship. And I must admit, Angola is not a, a kind of usual place to start a cruise from. I'm reading the paper and there was an article in it saying that there had been a, a pirate attack on a, a ship in a place called Pointe Noire in Congo, Brazzaville. So I said to my husband, who was also coming on this trip, isn't that where we're going tomorrow on the, on the ship? So he looked and said, yeah. And then we read further on in the article and it said that this area is the most dangerous stretch of sea on Earth now. And so we were like, OK. And so when we got to the ship, in, there was all this razor wire on the back of this boutique cruise. And it was traveling with no lights at night, which was a bit disconcerting. And we had all this sort of blackout in the restaurant and everything, so which wasn't really quite what I expected of cruise. And in fact, afterwards, when I came back, I talked to somebody who is head of a company that provides or that sort of negotiates for ships that have been taken by pirates in the area. And he actually couldn't believe the passenger crews had gone through that stretch of water. But we survived. So that would have been rather ironic to have yes, if you've been, been, if you've been damaged on, at the yeah. hands of pirates on a cruise. On a holiday. It would be rather, yeah, rather upsetting to have gone in, 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 in that way. But Christina, luckily not. Luckily you've been here to join us in, in this fascinating conversation. Final question, Simon, 
what's the next risky thing you're going to do? And don't say cook your lunch or anything. I mean, in terms of your professional life. <laughs> oh, professionally. Oh, I hate to say it. It's, I'm, I'm probably standing on a stage. Doing a live stage talk in front of people is still that gets the ticker going. That feels, is it risky? It's probably more scary than risky, but the two are quite, in, quite linked together, aren't they? So there's a risk involved in that, but I'm excited about it. Fantastic, Simon. And Christina, where next for you on, the, on your professional journey? Hmm, probably back to Ukraine, I think. And uh, yeah, I mean, the one thing I feel about the war in Ukraine is it is really sucking the bandwidth from everything else. So there's an awful lot else going on in the world, like the war in Sudan and what's happening in Afghanistan and Yemen and many places that is not getting covered. And that's very frustrating. So I try very hard to, to keep going to, to those places too. Simon, Christina, that has been a remarkable conversation. We've had the privilege of listening to your stories. Thank you for coming on the Futureverse podcast. Please, goodness, both of you, look after yourself and your loved ones and your family. Goodness me, I feel, I feel slightly anxious just listening to the risks you take in your professional life. So thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. And if any of the issues we've discussed in today's episode have sparked your interest, please do visit y-tree.com to find out more about Ytree and the work they are doing to provide an alternative perspective on money and life. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. The episode was produced and edited by Isabella Soames. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on, and what our future podcasts should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And for more information about Ytree, visit y-tree.com. And for more episodes of the Futureverse, search Futureverse wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.